Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Verroost, verroost, which, as you all know, is Icelandic for Achtung, Achtung. Now, this may be the first mention of Iceland, and we have ways of making you talk, but just to prove we're very much interested in the global picture, did you know... Did you know that after failing to persuade the Icelandic government to join the Allies by diplomatic means, we invaded them? Ha <laughs> ha! It took a grand total of 746 Royal Marines to make them see reason. That's that's. Uh, I did know that. Um, it's a it's a little cheeky, isn't it? It's a little bit. It is a little bit. I mean, yeah. you know, it's 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 sort of it's it's really bad when the Germans do it, but when we do it, it's sort of okay. But you know what? I always think that little the little episodes like that. Re- show you that the Second World War and the Seven Years' War have a, a great deal in common. Yes. Um, what, what they would call a descent, an amphibious descent onto somewhere that yep. they needed strategically. they just take it. They didn't yep. care what the locals thought and uh, off, on you'd go. You know, and Churchill saw, of course Churchill saw the war in, that, yep. in those terms as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was all for invading Norway, wasn't he, of course? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that was a shit show and, and then you need that Prime Minister. Imagine <laughs> someone being terrible at their job ministerially and ending up being Prime Minister. It's just... Can you ex- believe it? I mean, it's just extraordinary. It's the most it never extraordinary happens. thing if it ever happened. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, talking of seeing reason, if you want to do the opposite, see total chaos... Do come along and join us at the Edinburgh Festival on Wednesday, the 7th of August, which, if you're listening to this on Dev Release, is, in fact, next week. And yeah, if you're listening week. to this after this August the 7th, well, you missed an absolute cracker, I'm sure. Yeah, you definitely did. Um, you can either book tickets by going to assemblyfestival, that's one word, assemblyfestival.com, or by calling the box office... Um, does anyone use a phone anymore? Have I called in the box office? You, you, some of you do. Oh, one, it's not, it's a landline as well. Enjoy the landline. Um, it's oh one six one six two three thirty thirty. And the people in that box office are not like you and I. If their landline rings, they answer. <laughs> oh one. Yeah. When was six, the last time you answered a landline? Um, I, well, sometimes I do kind of out of like sport to see what's actually going on. And it's normally you have been involved in a road accident. That was not <laughs> your fault. Um, anyway, 0161-623-3030, assemblyfestival.com. Um, uh, and that's at one forty-five on Wednesday next week. And we'll be taking your questions and we'll be doing... Uh, and showing stuff. Showing stuff and talking about um, some of the things, favourite topics we want to get our teeth into. Okay, and there'll be pictures too. And there will be there'll be pictures, even though it's a podcast. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know some of you think James and I sometimes talk a load of old mush on this podcast. So, how about this from listener Sean Berlinson? He says, "I thought I'd share my granddad's story. Based in North Africa with the DLI, he was responsible for the mess. He asked around about what the men wanted from home. The answer was." Mushy peas. Of Except course. Mushy peas. He searched high and low for steepers, as they called them, but could only get yellow split peas. So he took these and cooked them up. Obviously, these were yellow and mushy peas are green. Solution? He stole a bottle of blue ink and added a few drops into the yellow split peas, turning them green. The story goes he was commended by his commanding officer and the rest of the men for managing to get hold of this taste from home. That's a fantastic story. Yeah. Peas and quink. Yeah, army marches on its stomach. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely does. And we've also had some more um, book recommendations from an act- access perspective. Uh, and actually, Alex Watson recommends Spitfire on My Tail by German pilot Ulrich Steinhilper, who, whose memoir I've read, and I would agree, it's, it's, it's very good. And uh, he was a very interesting character and actually came up in a, in a, a mild Twitter spat I had this evening um, with oh, our good friend Rob oh, Schaefer. You haven't had a Twitter spat, have you? Yeah. Will you never learn? I know. Can you believe it? (laughs) 
Anyway, Rob, as you know, um, is a great fan of, of Adolf Galland, and someone else had emailed in um, to the podcast and said, uh, or rather twit- tweeted in to the podcast and said, was it true? What, you know, what, what was um, Douglas Bader? Was, was he a good bloke or was he an arsehole? And I said, well, I kind of think that Galland... Bader and Bob Stanford all cut from the same cloth and they were all kind of you know alpha male my way or the highway type so as long as you danced their yeah. tune you were they were they were fine but the moment yeah. you kind of caused them any problem or didn't exactly toe the line they they were complete assholes <laughs> Rob took great yeah but the thing is but the thing well but yes but but Rob Rob um Rob was <laughs> I, I, I imagine he would because he was sort of friends with Galland when when Rob was that's how Rob got into history is he wrote to Galland he, I think I think he looked him up in the phone book and rang him up and said I'm awfully interested in history Mr Galland will you will you um Herr tell General. me your, tell me your stories Herr, Herr General and he said yes sure and took him under his wing so um he clearly in later life was uh, mellowed was a, a bit. Was a top fella, but um, uh, I mean the thing is, it's that's command, isn't it? And uh, there are very few, very few um, prominent leaders in the war who come out with everyone saying they were great. Yeah, um, Alexander won, I guess. Yeah, he's I mean pro- the point is that Steinhilber yeah. thought he was an absolute. I mean, really thought he was a lot worse than being an asshole. I mean, right, Steinhilber okay. really didn't like him at all. Said he was um, arrogant, alpha male, and a my way or the highway type. But I expect I expect Galland spoke very highly of Steinhilper, so there you go. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> anyway, and Peter Aston writes, great book, The Guns of War by George Blackburn. Absolutely. Um, oh. A forward observation officer in the Canadian artillery unit in Normandy, Cornfalais, Pocket, Crossing the Seine, Belgium, Holland, Germany. Harrowing, gripping read of The War at the Sharp End. Love the podcast. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, hashtag We Have Ways. To, to, to the uninitiated, forward observation officer, a foo, what, what, what did they do? So they were a part of an artillery unit, but they'd be up there with the infantry and they would be observing where the kind of artillery was landing and being the kind of go-between between the infantry and the artillery back. So they'd be on the blower saying, okay, yeah, you need to, you need to hit this spot and left a bit, forward a bit. And in Normandy, in Normandy, the, fir- the, the start of the battle, there were lots of naval um, forward observation officers yeah, absolutely, there, were yeah. calling, calling in the naval gunfire. Yep. Yep, absolutely, uh, and actually, you know, and he's absolutely right. George Blackburn is a is a it's that's a really really good book. It's a big old book, I tell you, but it is um, it's a good one. There's a good book, and, I, and I, I'm annoyed with myself that I don't remember the name of the author um, about the about Mortain, about Operation Lutich from the point of view of a forward observation officer, the guy up on the hill at oh yeah. At, um, at Mortain and uh, yeah. uh, and he him describing calling in the gunfire on the on the wow. Um, oh, I haven't I've come got, across that. I've one. got his book upstairs. Um, I should run up and get it now, but I won't. Have right, you ever okay. been down there? Have you ever been yeah, down I have, there? Yeah, yeah, I've been on. Been on. In fact, I, he we interviewed him. This is why I'm annoying myself for not remembering. We we did a piece with him at the top of that hill. Wow. Um, uh, for Road to Berlin, um, with him describing what it was like when the counter battery fire, um, uh, came in. You know, oh God, yeah, yeah. hideous, hideous, amazing. Business. Seeing the Panzers being stopped. By the sheer weight, because they, they 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 did a they did the American equivalent of a divisional stonk on them and and and, and completely stopped the, the Panzers. Anyway, it's an amazing spot though, isn't it? You can see for absolutely yeah, you can see it for absolutely miles. You can see you can basically see the whole of Normandy. You can yep. see Mont Saint Michel and into Brittany yep. uh, to the to the west, and then all the way back up um, uh, the the whole basically the lodgement area. Mm. All the, you know, on a clear day, you can see all the way back the other way. Anyway, last week we talked about the British soldiers in the desert. It says desert here on our <laughs> Operation Desert Spoon. Um, uh, <laughs> last week we talked about the British soldiers in the desert and their lack of sun protection. Well, this prompted DC to get in touch on Twitter and send us a link to an old Beeb report about the discovery in 2015 of 16 tins of US Army sun cream which were unearthed on Salisbury Plain. So the, the Americans ahead of the Brits on that one. Not surprising, really. No, I mean, they were always the kind of, you know, the, the flag bearers of modernity, weren't they? Well, and also they've got large stretches of deserty bits of America, haven't they? So it's a problem yeah. they and a lot more sun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly exactly it. <laughs> Us cold northern European types. I mean, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. But pale-faced European types. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't need much sun cream in Torquay, not in 1939. <laughs> um, and last week we got uh, we talked about the toughest fighting unit, and Dan Jackson got in touch to say broadening the discussion on toughest unit etc would you say that the 50th division saw the most fighting 
And within that were the DLI, the most battle-hardened regiment. France, North Africa, Sicily, D-Day, etc., etc. Monty loved them. Some as good, but none were better. Well, do you know what? I've long, long thought that the DLI were the kind of sort of... You know, they were the firefighters of the British infantry, weren't they, really? Yep. There were zillions of battalions of them, and they were literally absolutely everywhere. But, everywhere. Yeah. They were everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really everywhere. No wonder they got sort of pissed off about, um, you know, being in the in the vanguard on, on in Normandy. Uh, but that's a yeah. really interesting observation, Dan. So thank you. And please, everyone, do send your questions and observations and stories to the hashtag WeHaveWays. Literally every single one gets read by our team. And we do love receiving this correspondence. Yeah, we do. We do. Um, now, the thing is, we've the last few podcasts, we've, we both keep touching on this book um, uh, that we've, we've both read by a historian called Jonathan Fennell. Yep. Um, uh, called Fighting the People's War, which is mm. a, about the British and Commonwealth armies in the Second World War. And more importantly, what's it about? It's about morale and how each of those countries dealt with the morale. Because, you know, we kind of, you know... Actually, we've sort of touched on that. The idea sun cream is a sort of issue because uh, <laughs> because it's about welfare of the men and and, yeah. and all this sort of thing. And what for, this book by Fennell is absolutely, absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Because it's not just the UK, which is or the British Army, which is the thing I think you and I have both read an awful lot about. And you know, there's um, uh, Browned off and bloody minded, which was a, a, a couple of years ago about about morale in in the in the in the, the sort of four British armies that were formed over the stretch of the war or existed over the stretch of the war, four or five. And, and then there's books like Stout Hearts, uh, Ben Kite's book about Normandy, which is a, again, yeah, which kind is of very about, good. Very, very much about what it was like being a soldier and, and how the army adapted to it. And some how of it worked, like, how it just operated. Well, and how it worked and how it operated. And, but this book is fascinating because it's, he, he does everywhere. So it's South Africa, it's New Zealand, it's Australia, it's Canada, it's India. And there and are the, lots of hidden gems in there, aren't there? The, there's just, loads of stuff I just didn't know about. Well, there's the, 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 the mutiny, the, new, the, the furlough mutiny in New Zealand. Yes, which amazing. Which is just, just the most incredible thing. And um, uh, Right, so no one knows about this. <laughs> so what is the furlough mutiny? So basically, the, the, the New Zealanders sent a division out to North Africa at the start of the war, to show willing and join in, but they didn't conscript anyone. And they had reserved occupations, and uh, and those soldiers went off to war. And three years later, it was decided they'd fought in Crete, in North Africa, and all over the place, with General Freiburg, who we've um, uh, uh, rather pissed on our chips with earlier in this series of podcasts. Sorry, sorry to the our New Zealand listeners. But basically... Brave man, brave what, man nonetheless. Very brave man. But what happens is they decide they send the first lot of people home the people who went out first are given furlough and allowed to go back to new zealand other side of the world big commitment big journey dangerous journey with the war in the far east and they go back to new zealand they get back to new zealand and they discover that it's like there isn't a war on and the people in reserved occupations because there's a labor shortage have successfully got their wages put up and they go on strike um they mutiny and they refuse to go back to it's Italy by this point. They refuse yep. to go back to the war. And this is the most experienced soldiers, the you know, the, the, the battle-hardened men, and, you know, the Kiwis always regarded as very doughty fighters, right? And they refuse to go back because they, they don't think they're being, they're being respected or treated properly. They don't see why they should go fight this war when everyone's getting soft at home. And they mutiny, and it reaches the point where the sergeant major, if I recall correctly, the sergeant major running this mutiny... Go sees the cabinet, the, 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 like what Tyler? It's it, it. He goes sees the prime minister of New Zealand and negotiates what's going to happen next. And they don't go back. They're all. I think they're dishonorably discharged, but no one's imprisoned, even though they're threatened with it. And they don't go back. Now that in itself is a sensational story. Imagine if a thing like that had happened here. Yeah. How that? How would that affect our view of the, the our cultural view of the Second World War? When, of course, we stood. Proudly alone, and as you and I both know, we didn't, and we and we we did it all ourselves, and we never buckled, and we never flinched, and we never wobbled. Although a lot of that book is about all the wobbles that happen in the, Brit the British Army, loads, of, lo and he's done this by going through the censors records, by looking at what people are writing, and then what the censors doing, because the censor isn't just like crossing out where well, we're in France now, Mum. He's they're using it to take the temperature of morale in the yeah. in the army. Anyway, this. Canadian, this, uh, I mean, we'll get to the Canadian mutiny in a minute. The, minute the, the, the mutiny in New Zealand is happening during the Third Battle of Monte Cassino. 
when the Kiwis have a preponderance, the Allies have a preponderance of equipment and material, eight to one advantage over the Germans and still can't beat the Germans. And Jonathan Fennell suggests it's not because the Germans are brilliant at defending or it's, it's a perfectly defendable position. It's because the Kiwi mailbag is full of people writing, writing to, the, right, to and fro saying they've all gone on strike. You should go on strike too. So, the, so his argument, is, and his argument is, is that basically they're just not trying quite hard enough. In the they're not trying hard enough because they don't think it's worth it. Because after all, if they'd gone home, they would they would be they'd have got out of the army by now, and it would be it would all be they'd be peachy and they I mean, wouldn't what, what, be danger but what, anymore. But it's out, fascinating. It really is. I, I agree with that. I agree with you. But 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 what do you think about that? Because I mean, you know, that third battle of, of Casino is preceded by them bombing the town. So it's yeah. not you know it's not just bombing. The monastery in February. It's also bombing the town. The whole of that yeah. town. That is ninety nine percent completely destroyed. It's it's yeah. a, it's a h- absolute hellhole. It's full of puddles and mosquitoes and malaria, and it's yeah. utterly miserable and, and rubble everywhere. And, and, and you, if you want to, if you want to move a Sherman your, tank, and you've got a letter in your top pocket from home saying, honestly, honestly, Kyle, if I were you, I wouldn't press home just your tank here. Don't bother, you mate. Come home. Come home and play rugby. You know, and 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 this is the th- th- that's so anyway. So and he's not saying it's the decisive factor, but he's saying that is has to be seen as part of the picture, yep. and it hasn't been so seen as that so far. And and Freiburg knows they've got a, they really they really have a proper major problem when this is going on. Anyway, happens again in Canada. Yeah, ninety late nineteen forty four, right? Because because the Canadians start to run out of soldiers after the attrition in Normandy. And the you know uh, and in Canada you only went overseas if you agreed to, yeah. And they decide they're going they might comb through the army at home um, because they can't do conscription because of the Quebec Quebecois thing that they can't a British a British war can't conscript French Canadian citizens although they are bailing out France so what is yeah. actually a problem here anyway the, the, but the, but the, they are the, nonetheless it, all volunteers. They are all volunteers. And so they, just, they think, well, maybe we're going to bring conscription. They talk about conscription politically, or there's yep. rumours of it, and maybe we'll comb through the, the, the army at home and send people abroad. And they go on strike. They mutiny as well. They call it the zombie mutiny. And they won't go either. And this is happening when you've the Canadian army um, up to its neck in uh, dyke water, which isn't as exciting yep. as it on sounds. On the Scheldt. Um, on the Scheldt, trying to clear the Germans out of the Scheldt and press home the clearing the Scheldt so Antwerp becomes a usable port. Yeah, and yeah. That's happening at the same time. And, the, and, the, and what, he, what he notes is that, the, is that somehow the, 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 the Canadian commanding officers in, in, in Belgium and Holland at the time managed to firewall the men against this and managed to keep morale going despite the fact that at home there's this mutiny going on. It's absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. And, that's before, and that's before we get to South Africa... Oh, before because it because of course the thing he talks about really interestingly is here in the UK you've got this thing of um, you know the beverage report and the army the yeah, army yeah. Um, education board and realizing that what you've got to do is you give men the le- you give the men lectures and you get them politically engaged politically active and that leads of course to the khaki um, election there's a lot of, and there's a lot of disagreement about the khaki election how mm. how much did the army vote Labour how much did that influence but the mailbag is full of people writing home going darling you should vote. Um, Labour because we need a bright future. Well, and I can tell you what also is is the beverage report. There's this big debate in the yeah. in the autumn of 1942 uh, about whether to publish it, and yeah. it is the Ministry of Information who say, no, actually, we can't make the same mistake as last time where we're kind of promising something that we're not going to deliver. We've yeah. got to get people um, actively engaged, and we've got to be upfront about them. And it comes, and actually, they they agree. It is it is it is a Conservative part, ironically, of the yeah. of the national government that, that presses for it. And it is Labour interestingly paradoxically for what follows who are saying no actually i don't think we should publish this but publish it they do they're accused all the way up whitehall yeah. to bestseller. to get the uh, yeah to to in the hmso his Majesty's stationary office um publication sort of building um and they do send a, a copy to every single british serviceman yeah. abroad and, and in the letters that i've read and 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 so on of Soldiers, British soldiers, whether they be in Sicily, whether they be in Burma, they are all talking about it. 
It's yeah. really obvious. They really do think this. And it's interesting yeah. because it comes at a time just when the kind of moral you know the cruise the moral crusade bit of the second world war is just mm. starting to blur because the co- you know we're into europe now you know particularly in the Euro- you know in the war in the west you know yeah. we're destroying vast numbers of 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 sicilian towns and villages you know we're going to go into into um, southern Italy and into Normandy the following year and destroy even more villages and towns and all the rest of it. You know, uh, our, our strategic air forces are going over yeah. a pulverizing German cities. Yeah, it doesn't look a lot like liberation, does it? Well, not really. And so the, there's got to be this kind of sort of okay. So what's the point of all this? Well, the point of all this is is um, you will bring peace to Europe, but when you come back, there will be a better Britain for you. There will be a better yeah. Britain where health, education. Um, work, employment, all that sort of stuff, or will all be sorted out. There will be yeah. a job for everyone. There will be a house for everybody, and all this kind of stuff. And obviously, that is the the, the sort of the beginning of the um, of the welfare state. And you know that is why they vote Labour in yeah. in in because in, in the summer of nineteen forty five. Because he doesn't just he doesn't just do this big picture. So what's really what's really great about about um, this book is you, you at the start of each sort of section you get you get. A layout of all all the actions that are occurring all over the world, and and that's one of the other things about this book is it completely brings home the, the massive scale of the British yeah, Empire, yeah, doesn't it? British Empire's reach and its involvement and what it gets up to. Yeah, and there's lots about the two million Indian troops as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, this, the thing is, this, we, we we actually talking about everything. In this book is quite difficult. But like in Normandy, for instance, he gets into. When things start slowing down, they bring they bring they bring hot showers into the forward areas so that the yeah. men can get a shower. They bring beer in when think when morale's getting a bit wonky, and that's because they're reading their mail. It's the censors going, oh, they're, they're all starting to grumble. Um, let's give them this bung them sort that out, and that's that's yeah, absolutely that's and, and Second Army Group. That's Monty. Yeah. That's, and, that's, and then that's Adam at the top, at the adjutant general. Yeah, who's one of who, the great unsung heroes of the yeah, war. Yeah, who's incredibly important to how this all cogs together. Well, so you say you say India. So, so of course, what happens in India is they're running out of officers to 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 man the Indian army. So they let Indian uh, Indian people become officers in the Indian army. Yeah. Now, of course, if you're an educated Indian person, chances are you're you're um, uh, a Congress supporter. Chances are you're in favour of independence. Yeah. So now you've got this incredible balancing act where you've got to motivate these people to fight for an empire that they want to leave. Yeah. And you get this extraordinary balancing act. And and the interesting thing about uh, about this book's remit is it goes it go he then it goes on into the post-war thing just as with here with the welfare state so he looks at how partition you get you get because everyone's been trained by the british army you get lots of people organizing resistance against partition you get people organizing the partition itself communities mobilizing around the, the you know the guy who's been away at war has come back and tells them how to fight you know and after all there's like I don't know, 100 million rifles in the world at this point. So, the, and 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 the the knock-on effect of of the way the British Army organized, the Indian Army was organized by the British, the way they structured the morale, the way they motivated people, all then plays into partition and what happens around partition. And it's it, the, the, again, it, it comes back to one of these things about the scale of the Second World War is that the sheer sheer size of it and yep. also the fact the consequences roll on. It doesn't end on it doesn't end on May the eighth. It doesn't end. In August, it, it, it forty-five, it rolls on and it goes on, and then there's South Africa. So the stuff about South Africa is amazing because yeah. because what he says basically is each each of these each of the um, imperial players or dominions or whatever they end up with a with a post-war settlement as, as a, and a, an awful lot of it is the legacy of how the armies were motivated, the populations were motivated to fight. So in South Africa, you have they do a levy. And then you volunteer to go to this is quite similar to Canada. Then you volunteer to go to North Africa, but the problem is, is they've got an Afrikaans population and an English South African population or Anglo South African population who don't get along as a legacy of the Boer War, right? And then of course, um, what happens is they both get pissed off with the fact that because they're no longer in the labour market and they're being paid tuppence to be soldiers, black workers are being paid more because there's a labour shortage, and it feeds into the apartheid coming in after the war because the white 
told you I served to, I signed up to fight this for this country and the blacks didn't and they got paid more oh, they were still getting paid fuck all relatively yeah. well, excuse the expression right um the, it, it caused a racial problem you had soldiers breaking out of their camps to find find black people to murder um and there's terrible incidences these race riots that the, the, the South African army uh, that then gets manipulated by nationalist politicians and and you end up with you end up with apartheid yeah that's that's the Second World War, the People's War that got us the welfare state, the NHS, got the South Africans apartheid. I know, it's in, amazing, in, isn't it? It's amazing. And in New Zealand, it got them this sort of civil understanding that, that, that a sergeant major could talk to a prime minister. And in, in Canada, it underlined the fact there was an ongoing simmering pot between the French Canadians and the, and the Anglo-Canadians. And in India, all the rest. And the tentacles of that are still being felt today. Exactly. And we, we haven't bothered talking about Australia, but, you know... Uh, but but we could. We but could. The, but the other things the I thought I, there's two things I thought were really interesting about it because because you also wrote about the um, specifically about morale in in Eighth Army and, yeah. the, and the turnaround and and I think I think where he's I, I'm I'm not sure about his argument is I, I think the main reason why morale dipped so much in sort of May June 1942 was because the generalship was really bad. <laughs> and they were losing. It wasn't because the equipment ah, but, wasn't good and they weren't ah, being supplied but, enough corned beef. But, but it's, he suggests it's chicken and egg, though, because he says yeah. if, the, if the men's morale is low, you can have the best general in the world, but they won't do what he wants them to do. Or they won't do what he wants them yeah, to but do. Yeah, I don't, I don't I think, but I think, but I, I think it's entirely chicken and egg because I think, I, think, I think it's because the generalship is so bad that... And because they're losing and because the 8th Army Command has allowed this kind of um, Superman thing about Rommel to creep in, which should yeah. never have happened, you know, yeah. even when they're winning, frankly, um, yeah. you know, because they win in, in Tobruk at the end of yeah, yeah. 1941. Um, and yet Rommel is still put on this sort of massive pedestal. It is, it is the army commander that is causing the dip in morale, not, you know, I, th I think had the morale, you know, had the army commander been really good, I don't think you'd have had the same issues. Yeah, because he, he says, say in France, you've got an army that doesn't really know why it's in France. It's been sat around, you know, 1940s, yeah. sat on his ass for nine months, wondering when the war's actually going to start. And, and he suggests if a general can have as many strategic plans as he wants, but if the, the army won't hold tactically... He, he can go whistle, and, and and that's why you have to get morale right. That's why you have to the men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, I would argue that the, the the BEF doesn't. You know, BEF does pretty well in in. Yeah, yeah of France. course. Yeah, well, then, know, so it's, as it's we've French, said before, it's, it's the French. The it's French, the, it's the flanks here. that are the problem. It's the there, French flanks. All right. Anyway, well, anyway. dear listener, read this book. Uh, yeah, it's really really good. It's, um, you know, every so often you get those books that come out that are that really, really do further one's understanding of the Second World War. Yeah. There's lots of fascinating books about SAS heroes or interesting yeah. um, memoirs or whatever, but, but there are those books that really, really stand out. I would say Adam Tooze's book, The Wages of Destruction, you know, yeah. all about the Nazi economy, which sounds really dry and boring, but actually is completely fantastic. Um, that very much falls into this category. David Edgerton's Britain's War Machine, I think is really, really yeah. good as well. Gets, yeah. Just gets you thinking and t takes you down a kind of different route of of, of a pro, you know completely different approach and i think jonathan fennell's book absolutely falls into that category it's something that yeah. is is really thought-provoking really makes you think yeah you know actually yeah that's a that's really really that's new fresh exciting all those sort of yeah. things yeah well there we go well dear listener it's time we took a short break james and i will play escape from cold it's castle world war Two until we return <laughs> I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. 
It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James and I have escaped the castle by glider and are heading for the Dutch ports. (laughs) (laughs) I particularly like your... Like Errol Flynn in Desperate Journey. (laughs) Right. Questions from our friends. This is episode 18. Did you know that, James? We've done 18 of these bad boys. have we really? Yeah. Goodness me. We'll be over by Christmas. Right. (laughs) Combining two of your great loves, this says John... What happened to the ashes urned during the Second World War? Did it stay at Lord's or were they moved elsewhere? Hashtag loving the podcast. Ah, um, I'm pretty sure they stayed, at, they stayed at Lord's. I don't think, I mean, you know, our, Lord, Lord's what, did have some shrapnel damage from a bomb on the, on the roof because after the war, at the end of the war, there were the victory tests and then there was the kind of sort of England versus the rest of the world right at the end of the summer. And that's yeah. where Keith Miller got 185 yeah. and it's one of the greatest innings he ever played and he smashed a massive six and it might have cleared the roof um uh, which obviously had only been ever done before and i think 1901 or two or something uh um but um it hit the uh the hole in the roof and bounced into it and rather than bouncing over it um but that's uh, but the as the ashes i'm pretty certain they stayed where they were I've what never your, heard what, them being kind of what was what was lords used for junior do you know yeah yeah it was an RAF um recruitment center Right. So, so once you recruited that you your initial when you were first you know so you get the note through they say yeah okay you're you're now accepting the RAF um, report to Lords Cricket Ground um, <laughs> and register and and you know that so it was a sort of regi- RAF registration point right but the yeah, oval was used as a POW camp at one point did it have a barrage balloon on it Do we probably think? probably search search light yeah probably probably, <laughs> probably. Uh, excellent right um, have you ever heard actually held the um, the Ashes urn. Uh, no, I haven't. Obviously, I've seen it, yeah, yeah. but I've never heard yeah, of it. Have. have you? Yeah, yeah. I have. Yeah. It is really tiny, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. With the England team, um, uh, when I sent them Get off you. to Aust- I sent them off to Australia five or six years ago. Um, I did the speech. The one where they won. Send them. No, the one where they got f- absolutely oh, roasted. No. And I've done this long. You know, it's because you hadn't read Jonathan Fennell beforehand, had you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I didn't know how to keep the morale up. No, I'd done this long, stupid speech about how they were going to absolutely thrash. You know, it's when they were, we played them in the summer and then again in the winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We won. Six years ago. 2013. Yeah, 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 we won in the summer and then we and then we went to Australia and got tonked. Yeah. That was yeah, the, anyway. the bad KP one, wasn't it? It's on me. That one, I'm going to accept the responsibility. <laughs> oh, right. Dear. Stuart Ilbury says, loving the podcast, chaps. Tick, can I ask you to talk about Saint Vith, Saint Vith? So much is talked about Bastogne and the heroic 101st, rightly so. But do you think the battle over at Saint Vith is equally important? And and is it as costly for both sides? Thanks. Uh, yeah, well, Saint Vith is a really important one because it, a bit like Bastogne, it's one of those kind of key nodal points. It's got a crossroads. Yep. It's got a railway hub. It's by a river. Um, yep. And actually, the defense, the first defense is in um, is, is a few miles to the east of that. It's where the Germans first attack. Although Saint Vit does crumble, it do, do, you know they do get overrun in about three or four days. I think it is, which is obviously what doesn't happen at Bastogne. It holds up the German advance. Yeah, uh, and, and the whole point about the German advance, a bit like back in May 1940, is it's got to stick to the timetable. The moment it kind of slips from its very, very precise timing, the whole thing starts to unravel. Yeah. 
And what the Americans do very, very successfully in the Ardennes in 1944 is they hang on to those nodal points in exactly the same way that the French don't in 1940. And yeah, that's yeah. the point. You've got to you've got to hold on to those key bridges. You've got to hold on to those crossroads. You've got to hold on to those nodal points. And Sam Vitt is an absolute classic example of that. And you know he's quite right. It does it does get ignored, um, largely because it didn't feature in Band of Brothers. But um, you know it, it, it is a re- and it's really really worth seeing because of course afterwards it got got flattened. But if you go to the um, go to the hills just to the um, east of Sam Vitt, it's a fantastic place. You know it's kind of pine forests on a hill yeah. and you can still see the foxholes and bomb craters and yeah, stuff it's and amazing. bits of yeah. old rusty metal and everything yeah. and, it, and it's in you know a lot of those pine forests it's incredibly still isn't it the air is yeah. absolutely yeah. still and it's incredibly moving and haunting uh, and there's lots and lots of debris from the battle of the bulge battlefield there it's a really fantastic place to visit yeah yeah of course it, that 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 offensive started on the nineteenth of December, didn't it? That was the when the yeah, the, I think yeah. so. Was it nineteenth or was it sixteenth? I can't remember. Anyway, well, it doesn't matter. But anyway, when, just before Christmas. When, when was it done for? Mm. How many days in had they? Because obviously, well, when did the weather lift? A, the weather lifted, didn't it? Where, and, where and, the weather lifts on the twenty third, doesn't it? And the air force can then 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 show up then. And when and when does no, when 60, does, you're right? It's the sixteenth. It started on. And I, I can't remember. And when the, the, and when the, does Patton turn up at Bastogne and his 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 third army and the and the armor of the third army turn up? That, that, that's 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 nineteen forty four still. It's it's the right yeah. side of the new year, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, like, it's around Christmas time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And you've got and the and the and then. You've got uh, the the British shortening their lines and everything, and yep, six airborne are bust in. Yep, and I, I Wally Part, you know, the, the who was famously in the first glider at Pegasus Bridge, he told me about when they got bust to the Ardennes, um, and it wasn't a very nice story about how. <laughs> Him and him and his mate got billeted in this house, and he said it was all silk sheets. How he wouldn't believe it. Oh, amazing! I hadn't slept in silk sheets all my life. Uh, you know, I was straight out of the East End and all that. And and, uh, and he says the thing is, um, she gave us uh, some wine with our dinner, and I hadn't had any wine in a long time. And he disagreed with me, and I'm, I, I shit the bed, didn't I? And, <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know that. Someone came to get them the next morning in a jeep toot toot, and he said, "Oh, so I, 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 I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm ashamed of myself. I bundled the sheets up, chucked them in the corner, ran off. Never said thank you or goodbye." <laughs> we didn't use that in the documentary, right? Uh, yeah. So yeah, but it, the thing is, is you're absolutely right. It's all about it, it, the, 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 the. I mean, obviously, you look at you look at um, the Arden offensive, and you just think, what on earth did they think? They would actually be able to achieve. I mean, you know what they're trying to do, but what they actually thought they'd be able to achieve. And it got bounced backwards and forwards between various generals saying it's impossible, right? Well, then, all right, then we'll do it then. And Hitler applying pressure. What? They can't have thought they were going to get to the MERS. They just can't have done. Because, uh, 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 you know, the German mailbag, the, the equivalent to the, the, the Allied one we were talking about earlier, was full of people writing back home going... They've got so much more stuff than us. Their weapons are better than ours. Yep. We're being overwhelmed. We can't move. We can't move without being dive bombed. Um, it's all pointless. But we must hold on because we're waiting for the wonder weapons or whatever. Yeah. And you, what were they? What did they act? Because they didn't achieve much in the end. I mean, obviously. Yeah, and, and actually, the, yeah, and talk it. Six hundred tanks lost. Yeah. Um, uh, something like sixty thousand. Although the, more Germans, more Germans were killed, wounded, or captured than than Americans. Uh, 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 no, let, more Americans were killed, wounded, captured in in the Ardennes battle than than Germans. Well, a lot of it is. I mean, all the commanders. I mean, there's a sort of there's, there's Hasse van Manteuffel, who's who's yeah. one of the army commanders, and you know, interesting about him is you know he's broadly considered to be you know in inverted commas a good. German general, you know, reasonable bloke, and yeah. not particularly pro-regime or anything like that. I mean, but all of the commanders were told, right, this is what's going to happen. It's on the Führer's orders. Don't forget, this is all post-plot, July yeah, yeah. plot. So everyone, yeah, yeah. you know, it's total clampdown. Everyone, all those commanders have heard the stories about, you know, being hanged with piano wire. Uh, and, what yeah. the, and what the Nazi leadership says is, you've got to do this. You mustn't breathe a word. If you don't do it, we'll kill you and we'll kill all your family. <laughs> you know, th- so, this is what it's got to, and so yeah. they go, "Jawohl, mein Führer," and, and yeah, off yeah. they go and do it. Um, and and the men just don't have any choice in the matter. 
Yeah. You know, half of them are kind of SS guys. And, you know, as we all know, by this stage of the war, a lot of the SS, the Waffen SS guys are not all massively well motivated. They're, they're no longer volunteers or all, all volunteers. A lot of them are, are recruited, you know, conscripted. You know, a lot of people are kind of, you, and you have to remember the kind of sort of you know, terrible atmosphere. If you're Germany, you know, you are now fighting absolutely for your family and your homeland. Yeah. You well, know that you are fighting, you know, the, the alternative is Armageddon. So what else, have you, what choice have you got? You've got, I mean, Cologne, um, by this point, has been totally destroyed, isn't it? 31st of October, um, there's a, the, Cologne is basically uninhabitable. You know, and in, mm. in Cologne, um, there was an uprising of people with, with weapons who, who fought the police and fought the army because they'd had enough and they were sa- obviously savagely put down. Yeah. Because, and it didn't happen anywhere else, but that, but that's where, that's where Germany's got to. It's industrial areas. I mean, this is the other reason why you can't afford to lose 600 tanks because your factories have all been flattened. Um, uh, the Krupp's work in Essen yep. is, is, as being, is being plastered once a week or whatever yep. with, yeah, yeah, yeah. by Bomber Command yeah. and the Americans. It's all kind of, it, 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 it's this roll of the dice thing and they always it's this idea you're buying time and you've got to buy time for the wonder weapons it's the sort of the refrain yeah, that yeah, comes but, around but, but talking of which I mean you know earlier on today I was in Orpington Kent on the site of the last V2 rocket to land mm. on English soil killed one person um, Ivy Millerchamp age 34 just got yeah. married flattened her bungalow in yeah. Kynaston Road Orpington yeah. and what is amazing is that in terms of casualties, two people on average were killed for every single V2 that yeah. was sent off, which, you know, started its journey to destruction by going into space and then coming down at kind of whatever, 3,000 miles an hour or something absurd yeah. and exploding 100 tonnes of Amatol. And yet, overall, I think casualties were something like four and a half thousand people killed yeah. by v2 something like that but double that were killed in the process of making them yeah yeah, yeah. And, and not a single soldier was killed at the front by a v2 or indeed a v1 so the whole thing is just so bonkers and it's mad weird, cause, because, and deranged but, and la la land because you might think you'd fire the v2s at the at the d-day beach the v1s at the d-day beaches as you? rommel you've, was screaming to, to you've Hitler got them please you've got them you can't do anything them, about them yeah, yeah. he wouldn't yeah. I mean, yeah. no, what we're going to do is crack morale. And you sort of go, want to go, yeah, but mein Führer, you know, we've been bombing. We're, we're bombed and, and it hasn't stopped cracked. us. Yeah, it yeah, hasn't yeah, stopped yeah, us yeah, fighting yeah. the war. Yeah, but this is different because they're all kind of weak um, Western democracies. Um, yeah, well, they don't seem that weak to me, you know, no yeah. offence. Um, it's, it's barking. And that's because, you know, the whole thing is just imploding. I think actually what really, if you want, want to look at one moment that actually really totally the Wehrmacht and, and, and the Waffen-SS start to completely implode. It's the moment that the Reichsbahn can no longer cope. Yeah, the yeah. moment the Reichsbahn comes across, it just basically just stops, is February 1945. And yeah. at that point, it's all over because the Reichsbahn is, the, the German railway is the glue that keeps the whole thing together. And, yeah. and you really see that from that point on, it's not... Obviously, a lot of the, the reason the Reichsbahn's not working is because of the bombing campaign, um, and you know city centres being destroyed and all the rest of it. Yeah. But but when the railways don't work, suddenly their means of their their lines of communications are just yep. totally broken, completely yep. irredeemably. Yeah. Right. Well. God, that started so, with Sam Vitt and ended up. Yeah. With well, VTs. there we go. Right. Okay. Uh, now, Alex Parkey asks. Um, it's, we've probably only got time for one more question because we, we've 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 really we ran with that ball. Great <laughs> podcast, gents. Thank my you. My question, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, I think you're right as well, Alex. Great podcast, gents. My question is, you're going to like this one, James. What difference would Malta getting Spitfires earlier have made to the Mediterranean theatre? Yeah, well, you know, grr. I mean, this really gets my goat. This one. Um, um, when I the the first bit of work on the second world war i ever did was was on the siege of malta in world war Two. yep and as a layman who was coming to this completely clean I, I knew absolutely nothing about the war apart from what i was studying for malta i literally just could not understand why they hadn't sent them earlier and i'm afraid it goes back to well it goes back to my old friend lee mallory and sholto douglas and stuff who i don't have an awful lot of good words for to be perfectly honest mm. but but 
between something like September uh, 1940 and December 1941, um, there was something like 8,500 Hurricanes built and 11,500 Spitfires built. Yep. And Fighter Command from early part of 1941 was doing nothing but fighter sweeps across the Channel, uh, which is exactly what the Luftwaffe had been doing against Britain and doing very, very badly. Um, yeah. In the in the summer of 1940 and into the autumn of 1940, uh, and it was achieving very very little. They absolutely did not need that number of Spitfires defending Britain in 1941. They just didn't, and they so easily could have been sent over to Malta and indeed to North Africa as well, and it would have made a massive massive difference because the big problem on Malta is that you've got. From the moment your radar picks up German planes and indeed Italian planes leaving Sicily and heading towards Malta, you've got 15 minutes. Yep. The fatal weakness of that robust old fighter aircraft, the Hurricane, is its slow rate of climb. Yep. If you're on the offensive, a Hurricane's actually perfectly okay. If you wanted to take that across the channel, it would be fine because you can climb up as high as you like. As long as you've got the height up there, you're fine. You know, yeah. so you as the aggressor, you can have the advantage. As a defender, the hurricane is not what you want because you can't get height. And in any air to air combat, what you really want is to hold the high ground, just like yeah. on the ground. Yeah. You know, you you know, you can the higher you are, the more advantageous your position is to come down and attack your enemy. The Spitfire could have got above the Messerschmitts had it been on Malta in 1931, and indeed the Mackies and all the rest of it. But Hurricane couldn't. What's also really interesting is that Hugh Pugh Lloyd, who was the air officer commanding of Malta, in all his requests for fighter replacements, never once specified Spitfires. And that's because his background was as a bomber man, and he didn't bother to do his homework and bone up enough on fighters. He just didn't get fighters. And, and Tom Neal, who was a brilliant bloke and a brilliant fighter pilot and a you know ace from the Battle of Britain, but also served on Malta, always says that the closest he ever got to punching a senior officer in the face was when Hugh Pugh Lloyd said, a bad workman blames his tools, when he said to him, please, 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 sir, get us some Spitfires. And Ooh. what changed was when Tedder, who by this stage, at the end of by you know autumn of 1941, was um, Air Officer Commanding in um, uh, Middle East, yeah. In Egypt, said, look, to his aide, Basil Embry, who was a, a pretty successful and eminent um, uh, fighter commander and subsequently air officer in his own right. He said to Basil Embry, he said, look, I don't really trust what P.P. Lloyd's saying. He sounds a bit of a jackass to me. Can you go over to Malta and I want you to do a report and, and see what you think? And Embry goes over in February 1942 and comes back and says, it's really clear what needs to happen. You need a first class ground controller in Las Caras, in the underground um, control room, which is basically just like all the bunkers in, yeah. you know, Uxbridge or wherever they have for the Battle of Britain, and you need lots of Spitfires, and you need lots of Spitfires soon. That is the only thing that's going to save Malta. And by March the 6th, they were over. But why... Why? And Keith Park gets involved, doesn't he? So yeah, he arrives in July. Uh, he arrives in July, takes over from Hugh Pugh Lloyd by that size, and, and he does, interestingly, he does big wings. So he ta- he sends over multiple multiple squadrons and says, right, get up into the air, chase them home, get get the height and hammer them as much as you possibly can and try and get them to the bombers before they actually reach the island. And within yeah. 10 days, the air battle for Malta is sort of, is over. Well, what, but, but is this because Malta is lower on the pecking order, RAF-wise? Is it, is it, is it is it seen as because it's obviously incredibly important strategically as a, as yeah a, as a, as a, so, so as what happens in 1940 everyone just thinks that Malta's going to be lost you know because yeah. they've they've taken their eye off the ball you know circumstances have changed Italy's entered the war they can't do everything let's just abandon yeah. it and then yeah. they go well hang on a minute you know the Italians aren't pressing home the advantage. I mean, it's really feeble. The the one chance that Mussolini has got to really make an impact in the Mediterranean War is invading um, Malta in quick order, and he just doesn't. And he doesn't do it. And he just right. doesn't do it. And, and so the initiative then passes back to Britain, and quickly they go, hang on a minute, actually, we can hold on here, chaps. So they send over lots of hurricanes, you know, the Faith Open charity thing with the biplanes. It only lasts about yeah. 10 days or a week or something. And then the yeah. first hurricanes arrive. You know, and remember, this is at, during the Battle of Britain. The hurricanes right. are being sent yeah. over. Yeah. Um, so they send over these hurricanes, and they send over vast numbers of anti-aircraft guns. I mean, it starts off with something like, you know, there's a 
combined total of about 100 anti-aircraft guns on on Malta in the summer of 1940 but by Christmas it's absolutely just covered in them yeah. and 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 very successfully too and so suddenly there is this determination not to lose Malta. But I think generally speaking, you know, the governor is is a guy called General Dobby. Um, Dobby is a member of the Plymouth Brethren. He's a bit mad. You know, Malta is a kind of incredibly Catholic Mediterranean island. It's sort of not an obvious match. Um, and you just sense that all the kind of the commands, the three commanders of the services out there, of which Hugh Pugh Lloyd is one, they're all a little bit B-list. And they only get replaced with with A list guys, people like Gort, who comes over and replaces Dobby, uh, um, and Park, who replaces um, um, Hugh Pugh Lloyd. Almost when it's too late. I mean, it's not because yeah. this is post Malta Blitz of of the kind of yeah. you know March April May or the sort of well March April, February March April of nineteen forty two when it becomes the most bomb place on earth. They sort of survive that ordeal. And post that, suddenly everyone sort of goes, oh, hang on a minute. Actually, the kind of fortunes in North Africa and the fortunes yeah. of, of Malta are completely wedded. What is yeah. just incredible is that no one has put, no one back in London, no one in the Middle East, no one on Malta has said, the fundamental problem here is that our fighter planes can't get enough height before the enemy <laughs> arrive here. We have a solution. That is Spitfires. Let's sort it out. No one, just no one does it until Basil Embry goes over in February 1942. And I find that, I still find that to this day, absolutely astonishing. I, I just cannot understand why they why they hadn't thought of that. And there's sort of feeble excuses. It's a bit like sort of not using 3.7 inch guns as in an anti-tank, uh, in an yeah. anti-tank role. Oh, well, you know, you'd have to retrain people. No, you don't. You just lower it and put a shell in, you know, and it's the same <laughs> with, you just don't. It's just absolute nonsense, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's the same with, you know, people, well, you know, it's quite dusty. You know, of all that dust in a Spitfire. Well, you know, it's the same for, you know, it works for a Hurricane, you know, and yeah, that's yeah. why you have a Vokes filter developed, which you put underneath a Spitfire. I mean, it's, 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 it's just poor command, poor leadership, oversight, no one thinking it through. So it's, it's, it's the fact that you've got second-rate people there, basically. Second-rate people there, and in the case of Fighter Command, you've got second-rate people in charge of Fighter Command after Dowding and Park era. Yeah. You know, I mean, Lee Mallory, I've sort of, kick the boot into him a number of times but i mean he's really rubbish uh, and and you know it's, it's it's home hogging you know it's like <laughs> yeah. this is my domain i'm going to hang on to spitfires it's a bit like why why aren't tempests and typhoons in italy you know yeah. why are there hardly any there are mosquitoes in italy but why are there hardly any it's it's, it's that kind of home advantage you know i i'm in whitehall i'm in the air ministry i'm yeah. closer to it and someone says well you know what about sending some like some spitfires oh no you can't do that you know and i go oh okay fine do you know what I mean? It was a little bit of a hassle. Yeah, yeah, bit yeah, of yeah, yeah, And it's why, why yeah. Spitfires don't get to Burma till kind of autumn of 1943. It's exactly the same reason and exactly the same problems. That the Hurricanes yeah. are a par with the Oscars that the Imperial Japanese Army have. And there's the, the, they are not the aircraft by 1943 in the same way that the aircraft, they're not the right aircraft in 1941 against Messerschmitt yeah. 109Fs. Yeah. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're just not comparable. You know, they're quite good in 1940, but they're obsolescent by that stage. But that's very much a pecking order that, that, that Fighter, Command's, Fighter Command's job, the thing it was invented for, that they've all come through, is to defend London, defend England, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 so how yeah. big a threat is, 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 is that well, it's after, not, it, after the end of the Blitz? Well, it's not, it's not anymore. No. We, it, but, that's, but, that's, but that's not how they're thinking, and that's their fiefdom and their domain. It's all that kind of political thing, yeah. isn't it? Of, uh, totally, yeah. yeah. But it doesn't make it any less of a right decision. I mean, it was a bad decision. Okay, I'm shaking my fist at Hugh Pulloid right now. Yeah. You muppy! Yeah. Well, um, well, James, I feel the bell for last orders has been rung. Um, yes. Excuse the melding of roles here. Next week, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are live in Edinburgh on Wednesday, the 7th of August, 1.45, at the Ballroom, I believe. At Gilded yeah, and Ballroom. I think and we're going to be a little bit longer, aren't we? It's going to be a little bit and of a yeah, longer it's podcast. Going to be, yeah, it's going to be a longer thing. Um, please come and see us. There'll be some costumes. There'll be some pictures for you to look at. Um, there'll be leather greatcoats. Exactly, and there'll be us chatting. So um, do come along if you're at the festival or live in the area. We'd love to see you. We'd love to listen to what you have to ask us. And if it's a good question, we'll go to the podcast. If it's rubbish, you won't. And, um, and please do get in touch on Twitter using the hashtag WeHaveWays. Until next time, cheerio. Auf Wiedersehen! <laughs>